Hey Tammy. What's up Caitlin? Oh not much. So this is actually our last episode for season two. Can you believe it? Sad. Yeah. Sad times. This summer got really crazy so I apologize. There was a couple weeks we unintentionally had to skip because we didn't get around to recording because we have like a million jobs. So yep, yep. Um, we love being able to do it but sometimes you know real life takes over. So yeah, that's yeah. why we're going to take a little pause before we get to season three and we'll be starting that back up in the fall. Um, probably September, October time frame so be on the lookout for that. But today, for our last episode, we're going to cover Yasser Saeed. Have you heard that one? It's a local case. I heard it, it took place a few years ago, correct? So I don't know much about it, um, but it resurfaced. I think they brought it back to the news, what, last year because of the sentencing or something? Well, because like he was, so he um, was captured after 15 years, I think. Good, nice. And then, um, and then he was you know, trial and all of that kind of stuff, which actually uh, happened pretty quickly, in my opinion, com- comparatively. A lot of times you'll see these things, like, happen, and then they don't go to trial for two years mm-hmm. or whatever, but they must have had enough evidence against him in all that time that he was he was on America's Most Wanted list on the top Dang. ten. Um, and, yeah, it's, um, I don't want to go into too much detail until we get into the episode, but it's kind of crazy because it was a local story and mm-hmm. just how he was able to... Um, evade capture for so long is really wild to me. 15 so. years. Well, yep. sir, is he still alive? <laughs> I was jumping ahead. Unfortunately, okay. he's still alive. Um, Sir, you, you gave the state 15 years to um, get a case against you, so that's probably why. Yeah. And you suck. So He totally sucks. He mm-hmm. murdered his two teenage daughters. Mm-mm-mm. So Mm-mm. there's a special place in hell for him. To murder your own kids. I mean, we as moms are always, and, and dads, I don't know. Thank you to the one dad listening and to the one mom. <laughs> um, but we're always worried that someone else is going to do harm to our kids. And so when we do it, you know, we do harm to our own kids. It's really. Yeah. I don't know gosh, how somebody you know, can do not it. Not enough. They have to, kids have to worry about being kidnapped. No. Yeah. Their own parents. Yeah. Well, you ready to dive in? Let's do it. His daughters were Amina and Sarah. These are the two girls that he, he later murdered. Um, and he had a couple of sons, too, who I'm not going to name because they they aided and abetted him Oh, I him didn't know he had this. other kids. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of them was Israel. I can't remember. I'm, I'd botch them if I said it because I didn't put them in my notes because they were really pointless. Um, although they did kind of help him um, stay, you know, evade capture during that entire time, so... I already have so many questions, but I'm sure you're going to cover them, so I don't want to jump ahead. Yeah, it's really crazy. We're going to kind of... There are so many things out there on this story. Um, Crime Junkie, Killer Queens. There's a documentary um, called The Price of Honor that's out there, and there's just a lot if you want to get all the details. Uh, I think his case is even still up on court TV, so you can go watch that if you want to. And we have... Uh, part of the reason I'm summing it up shortly is because we have a guest speaker today who was a witness in the trial of Yasser Saeed. Oh, dang. So I'm just going to give you some really high-level details about what happened here. But definitely, if you're interested in hearing more, there's a lot of information out there. Um, some of the places that I mentioned or even just, you know, search for Yasser 
website on your podcast and or Google it. or something, yeah, right? And you can find more on him. But he was an Egyptian man. He married their mom, Patricia, when she was 15. Is she Egyptian as well? No, she was American. She was American. Hey, did a yes, Yasser, Yasser, Yasser. Guy, did he, um, did he know Jemima? <laughs> Yo, no. Mima. Yo, Mima. What was her name? Oh, Mima. Oh, Mima. Oh, Mima. Oh, Mima. Oh, Mima. Oh, podcast. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> She'll always be Jemima. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So she was married at 15 and he was 30. How did that happen? <sighs> hey, I, so just real quick, there. I want to just throw something in real quick. I've been watching um, A Child Bride on Hulu. Uh huh. Did you know that oh, there is no God, minimum it. age to be married in the United States? Only with um, parental, parental consent. Parental consent, yeah. So I don't know why I, I just asked that question, like, how'd that happen? She obviously had parental consent. But yeah. I don't know who marries their daughter to a 30-year-old man at the age of 15. I don't she either. Come from I'm not sure beginnings. what she came from. That would be my assumption. He apparently kind of, like, duped her parents into thinking that he had all this money and this extra land and... Really, he had no green card. He had a pyramid. Have we been there before in yeah. our stories? Oh, green dang, card, keep more green yeah, cards. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so he, like, romanced the parents, I guess, into thinking that he was this, like, perfect husband. And he turned out to be physically, sexually abusive towards her and his daughters. Stop it. Um, I will not go into much detail. There's a lot of detail on Killer Queen's podcast episode on this. Um, it's disgusting videos which would explain why he did what he did not that i'm justifying but in his mind because you have to ask yourself why when you hear the when you hear what caitlin's about to tell you why was he so obsessive and controlling and worried about them leaving you know what i mean unless there was to marry off amina the older daughter to a 40 year old egyptian man like he flew her to egypt when he found out she was interested in an american boy to try to get her an arranged marriage that's better that's better I mean, culturally, I'm not ragging on the cultures. I'm just saying, culturally, I mean, that's Egypt, Egypt Middle East. Like, that's. I mean, I do. am a little that's bit. How that's how you do life. It is disgusting. It's gross. I've no read matter. a lot of books on it, and, you know, there's. But yeah, I'm just saying that culturally, that's just how, like, women are objects. Yeah. And they are just it's awful. They, yeah, they're not, they're not respected or valued or anything. Yeah, definitely not by this man. Um, and he was so, I mean, so hypocritical because he married an American woman. And then I didn't know. want the girls dating anybody American or marrying American. Mm-hmm. He wanted them to marry Egyptian. And I don't know. It, the whole thing is just wonky. Um, but he was, a, he was a creep. He was a real creeper. The girls did at one point try to go to... Actually, I think they told a teacher. If I'm not mistaken, it was Amina who told the teacher. Don't quote me on that. It could have been Sarah. But one of them told their teacher that he was having sex with them. And then... What did the teacher do? We know? I, I don't remember if the teacher reported it, but I know for sure the girls eventually reported it. Like, the mom took them to the police station to report this. And then somehow along the lines, they got convinced, because I, I believe both girls eventually were the ones that, that went to the police station to file this report. And they eventually were like, just kidding. We were mad at our dad for something. Oh. And no, it didn't happen, but mm-hmm. it absolutely happened. And for family sure. members knew it happened. And their mom, it's so hard, I think, in this situation because mom knew what was going on. But mom was married off at 15, during years where she was maturing under the thumb of this creeper. Yeah, yep. So there was a lot of her, I'm sure there was some self-preservation 
there. Mm-hmm. I think there was probably fear from her. So I, as much as it would be easy to be like, mom should have done this, mom should have done that. Mom was freaking 15 years old when she got married. And let me tell you, he probably got her pregnant right away. Mm-hmm. Like, there was no mm-hmm. maturing. There was no, like, learning how to adult. She never got to do that. And so I, it's it's hard, I think, not... I think it's hard to, to, to pass judgment on someone who's also been through trauma in this situation. For sure. One thing that I'm learning on this, like, child bride show is that a lot of the um, victims, we'll call the girls victims, they go to their family for help. So yeah. Patricia could have very – and I'm not saying – I'm, but, I mean, I had no idea that um, they really – it was, you know, because you really think, okay, the, the perpetrator or, you know, the, the pedophile – is abusing the victim and the victim goes to seek help from the family and most of the girls on this show have like told their family Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and family just either one one girl was told to pray keep praying and another yeah and another and i'm spiritual but you know the lord is gonna have to yeah no he's gonna be like intervene (laughs) but you know what when he flooded the earth he gave noah an ark and it might be a little metaphoric but your family is your freaking ark yeah and they went to the damn ark and they said, no, nope, sorry, go, go, yeah. go to God. You know, mm-hmm. because that's what that's what the thing. That's you're supposed to be that safe haven. It's, for sure, yeah. It, to me, it's just um, turning a blind eye to it for whatever reason. But, yeah, that, that, that doesn't surprise me. So maybe Patricia reached out, don't know, yeah. or felt like she, she didn't. I mean, if you're married off at 15, yeah. what type of support do you think that you have? Um, and a lot of families, like you said, they don't self-preserving like they really don't want the shame of right. I mean that's that that'll carry with you for a mm-hmm. while so ugh, gross yeah it is really gross so mom's aware of this stuff going on eventually because you know she's getting abused too so there's I mean it's not like he's treating her well and the girl's not he she's also part of this abuse because he's just treating her like an object just like the rest of them so finally finally Patricia decides she wants to leave Yasser Oh, damn, she leaves. Okay. Yeah, there's more to this, but at this point, the girls are... uh, Sarah is 17, Amina is 18, and Patricia was 35 around this point. Okay. So, yes, she had to be having these kids super early. Um, So she decides she's going to leave. She takes off. She goes to her sister's house. Um, I think they brought the boyfriends, maybe, because Amina and Sarah had boyfriends at the time, uh, which... Again, more detail on other places because we don't have time for it today. But they went to lengths to disguise their relationships and had, like, code words for the boyfriends to not text back because they knew that their phone was about to be taken by Yasser. They didn't ever communicate on the phone, really, about anything romantic. I think, I mean, it was the lengths that they went to to protect these boyfriends because they, another thing, too, is that they always told everyone who would listen that their dad was going to kill them. And yet again... How did nobody save them from this? Freaking what the hell? So, yeah. they. I mean, it was well known that they assumed he would eventually kill them. Cheese and crackers. Yes. And I know, like, the one boyfriend, Amina's boyfriend, um, his mom was aware of this stuff, too. And I think that they were trying to make things happen to get her out of that situation. But I'm sure that they were trying to be cautious. I mean, imagine your son comes to you and this girl is worried her dad's going to murder her. And they want to run off and get married. How cautious are you going to be, right? They take off. They go to Patricia's sister, and you may hear her called Tissy, I believe, is a nickname of the mom, just in case you listen to other things. Um, They go to her sister's, and they're staying there. They all change their cell phone numbers so that he doesn't know where they are. He can't track them, yada, yada, right? Smart. Mm -hmm. Smart. 
Except that one day, the sister runs out of something. Sour cream. Who knows? Whatever. Mm-hmm. And they, she said, hey, Patricia, will you go to the store? And she's like, sure. I just have to take all the kids with me. No, I can't. I am in witness protection. <sighs> right? Right. Cannot go anywhere. I mean, you freaking break. But again, she, it's all she's known for the past, m- over half of her life. So some part of her probably feels like she can't live outside of him. I don't know. I don't, I'm grateful that I've never had to be in a situation like that, but where it's dangerous and you know, like when you leave your abuser, we've said it before, that's the most dangerous time. So flying through this, but eventually it comes out. She's been talking to the one of the sons who has communicated that Yasser wants her to come back. She tries to trick her daughters into oh, she going, going back, back home. No. Sarah eventually is guilted into it, the younger daughter, but Amina's like, fuck the hell no. Yeah. I'm not going back I'm to 18, that bitches. jack wagon. No, thank you. I got a boyfriend. Yeah. and But I forget how exactly, but she is eventually conned into coming back. Mm. And Sad. they arrive back home on, I want to say New Year's Eve because all of this takes place on New Year's Day. And New Year's Day, Yasser says, I'm going to take the girls to dinner. And Patricia says, can I come? And he said, no, this is just the dinner for the girls. So he gets them in his cab and he starts driving and he's armed and he pulls out again. The girls are driving. Uh, Mina's in the front seat. Sarah's in the back seat where they usually sit. And he shoots Amina first. And then he turns around and he shoots Sarah in so the So he, he wasn't even playing around. There wasn't even a discussion or anything that we know of. Yeah, not that we know of. Um, well, Jeez. the reason that we know how some of this happened is because Sarah called 911 mm. while she's dying. And the 911 operator assumingly had trouble hearing her and he says what's going on ma'am and she said I'm dying that's what's up and she's like my dad he shot me and um he shot multiple times and at one point you could kind of hear like she's she goes a little bit quiet they keep the line open but it's hard they can't track them because Yasser shot them and then drove around with them now I'm assuming this is at night because if you see somebody bloody in a car two girls dying in the back seat. I would hope somebody would notice that, right? And it's in a cab, which is yeah, even more... I mean, you're going to shoot them. There's going to be blood freaking everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's going to be all over the windows, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So he's driving around. They can't pinpoint his location, and they keep her on the phone as long as they can. At one point, it sounds like he stops the car and gets in the back because he probably realized like, he can't get to the phone. He can't shoot her more. Like, she's not dying. So he gets out, and she's going, no, stop, stop. And, you know, eventually the phone line does go dead. I think that there may have been some more gunshots on there. It is so hard to hear this girl. Um, But she said, my dad shot me. She named him as the one who shot her. So. Is Amina alive at this point that we know of? I am almost certain she she died pretty immediately. Oh, okay. Yeah. um, He shot her very close range. I mean, Sarah too, but Amina was right next to him, so. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. I apologize exactly where she was shot. I mean, it could have been right in the head, but whatever, whatever it was, he killed her pretty quickly. So she wasn't on, she wasn't on the 911 call. Right. Okay. No, it was Sarah the whole time. Um, and who knows, maybe she was sitting behind Amina and that's why like he couldn't reach back and grab her while he was driving. I don't know. So he, they die in his cab and he drives around until they're dead. So then he drives to the Omni Mandalay, which is in Las Colinas in Irving, Texas, and he parks his cab. And takes off. Now, on foot? That has never been oh, we don't know. totally confirmed. But speculation... Had some sort of plan, though. Is that he had some sort of plan. Exactly. Yeah. Because you shoot somebody that close range, you're going to get freaking blood and guts all over you. So there's no way that man walked out and into another cab and nobody questioned all the blood all over this man. 
nah. So he leaves the cab, and eventually a cab driver, um, another cab driver, sees the cab abandoned, sees that there are girls in there in trouble. He probably saw the blood and stuff. It's dark at this point where he parked. It was a little bit, um, I mean, it was at night, so, but it was kind of like covered trees, like heavy trees and stuff, so it was even darker, like blocking any street lights. And why, like, why drop the car off at a hotel? Probably because he wanted them to be found. Oh, okay. Because it was mm. frequented. It was, um, I want to think, I think it was Cotton Bowl weekend. No, no, our witness does talk about that in the interview, but it was Cotton Bowl weekend, and so a lot of people, a lot of foot traffic, and then that they would be found. And he takes off, and he becomes a fugitive for 15 years until he's found. They speculated that he was, like, out of the country. He was back in Egypt. They thought he could be driving cabs in New York City. Turns out he was down the street in Justin. (laughs) So Justin is, I don't know, what, 10, 15 minutes from us, not too far from where we're at, but um, we won't tell you where we are, (laughs) but um, Louisville is where he was living when all this stuff happened, and so, I mean, all of it's, like, right within the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. The cops not check, I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm not a cop, but don't we go looking for family, immediate family? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that there was some of that. I think that they actually were surveilling. That's how they found was a he lot like of this. An aunt, like, was he Anne Frank up in the attic? For I mean, basically, years? he was in this like abandoned apartment with nothing. I think Jeez, with a, an air mattress. But gosh, like, what kind of life? Right, you suck, dude. Took the words out of my mouth. That's exactly what I was thinking. And so, yeah, so he was just kind of hanging out in Justin, and I think it was rented by his son or sons and his niece was involved in this i mean again another woman who probably was just dragged into doing this because there was no choice given but yeah and they were eventually prosecuted too i, I don't Good. think they're shedding as much time as him but he they definitely faced charges for aiding and abetting him and um 15 years that's a lot look i house guests for even over four days <laughs> well nobody was living in the apartment with him to my understanding it was actually a maintenance guy who who they recognized him because there was some kind of crazy, like, $100,000 or $50,000, like, reward on his head. And, I mean, I don't know if that's... But I don't even see... I'm a crime person, and I don't even know all the people on America's Most Wanted. Like, I don't... No. So the fact Thank that this guy that. recognized him was amazing. Thank God for this maintenance man who, you know, recognized him and went right to the to the police, and they showed up, and they arrested him and all the things. Um he may have taken off actually I'm so sorry that I don't know this part of it but it's like so much to this story that um I don't want to get it wrong but they did eventually arrest him and they did take him to trial and he was convicted um life without parole so thank god for that but I got a chance to interview one of the witnesses who was a gentleman who found the girls in the vehicle and had to call 911 which I can't can't Mm-mm. even stomach the possibility of having to go through something like that but mm. he shared with us what it was like to go through that entire process and uh you know i'm gonna gonna play that interview for you all right now so i am joined today by mr watson who was yeah. a key witness in the yasser said murder trial nathan thank you for joining us today we really appreciate you coming on My here pleasure. to talk about this um so i guess let's start off first if you don't mind telling me a little bit about like what what happened that you are you became a witness in this trial, like what was your role? Sure, I was the manager on duty at the Omni Mainland Hotel, and uh, I was the person that should I say one of the people that found the two girls in the back of the cab. Um, and you were the one that made the nine one one call, correct? Yes, ma'am. So that must have been really traumatizing then. Um, so you get 
what happened? You get a radio call, and then do you mind just kind of walking me through what happened? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so um, it was the Cotton Bowl that, that night. This was a New Year's Day, and um, it's fairly busy, and had a bit of a lull, and so I was in the office. Got a radio transmission that, you know, that the doorman had uh, found a couple girls in the back of a cab and he said that they were hurt pretty bad. And so this is typically transmission that you don't want going over the radio just in case people are listening or guests over here. You don't, these are transmissions you typically want to keep confidential. Um, like the walkie-talkie radios, right? Yeah, a radio, yep. So... I basically intercepted the transmission and uh, was a, a bit snarky with the people, but mm-hmm. uh, told them, you know, not to transmit that stuff over the radio. But asked how how hurt or how injured these uh, people were, uh, whether we needed to call an ambulance or a paramedic, and uh, the doorman told me that I needed to come outside, and so that's not typical. And, so it was a bit alarming, and so I rushed outside and got to the, the front drive, and the doorman and a cab driver were uh, at the, or the porte or the turnstile, and um, gave me some information, basically told me that I needed to go down to the cab to take a look for myself. What did you expect? Like, what, what I can't even imagine, what did you think you were walking up on? Well, I mean, it was New Year's. Um, it's typically a time that people like to to drink, have a good time, and uh, so for me, it was more of these girls may have gotten in a fight at Fair Park, and they were injured, or you know something to that extent. Never anticipated what I walked up on. So um, the the cab driver um, walked with me in the dorm and. And then I walked to the car. They stayed back, and um, so when I when I looked into the driver's side passenger driver's side door, um, I saw one of the young ladies. Um, her eyes were fixed open, and wasn't moving. And I knocked on the window, knocked on the door. Uh, no response, and then saw a young lady in the back seat, and. Uh, basically the same thing. I didn't open the doors you know, at that point, didn't see the girls moving, and the way that the uh, young lady in the front looked, um, it was obvious that she wasn't alive, so wow. um, it was just one of those things where at that point I just wanted to preserve any kind of a crime scene. I don't want my That's really smart. fingerprints or anything like that or... And uh, so, yeah, so at that point, I called 911, and, uh, you know, it was kind of one of those deals where you don't really remember much, you know, you know, as far as, like, you know, you remember everything, but you right. don't remember, like, kind of blurs. the time passes, and 911 dispatch is asking you certain questions, and you're answering, and, you know, a lot of times, since all this happened, I would go back and I'd listen to those... Uh, those 911 calls as they're available like on like YouTube or whatever and, and um, you know some of the things that I was saying like I remember saying it but I don't remember saying it right kind of thing, so. 
Time will do that to you, I think, too. So, do you have any specific memories about that, like, that day? Like, the, the day of the week or, you know, what were you wearing that day? Anything that, like, just triggers back to that day or did all of that just kind of blur out because of what happened? I know that I was on PTO for about a week or so. Before or after? Before. I just got back into town, and this was my first shift. Oh, geez. Back from PTO. and It was not a super busy day at the hotel, but it was busy enough. And there's, you know, when you have a game, everything kind of like... uh, like works up to that game time. Everybody leaves all at one time. And you have like buses and transportation and people leaving in cars and so once it once people were, were gone, they were gone and so it was kinda of slow while they were gone and you know, everything is you know, working itself back up to when they all arrive back from the game. So um, it was cold. It was really cold outside. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and then the, you know, in the, in the area that the cab was, it was dark. But you know, if if you worked at this hotel or you spent any time at the hotel, you know that in this particular area, it's pretty damn dark. So it's, uh, you know, I know what happened now that it's been several years after the fact, and you know, but when you're there and before it happened, and you know somebody planned this or it was spontaneous whatever like if you worked at this hotel you knew that it was really dark in that cab stand so if you really want to get away with something uh, it's really the place to do it and you know I'm not the guy that killed my daughters but you know I I can kind of like uh, play out how he may have done it because when this all went down called 911 police came out uh, realized that this is a girl that had placed a call an hour before my 911 call and basically told the dispatch that her father had shot her several times and that she was dying. So you discover the girls, but you know, and then you make this phone call to 911. And what happened next? How quickly did law enforcement arrive um, and start investigating? Was it a pretty quick process? How did that go down? Um, so the police officer arrived, the initial guy. Yeah, it's a bit, sense of relief when the police got to the hotel or um, arrived. And but in this particular moment, police officer got there, realized the girls were dead, called for backup. You know, I'm assuming the coroner. And um, but then the, the SWAT team came, so there's like you know, like a dozen officers and um, you know like prototypical like SWAT uniforms and AR-15s and wow. they were basically canvassing <clears throat> that whole area of the hotel down by uh, Lake Caroline that's you know kind of out in Las Colinas. If you've been there you kind of know what I'm talking about but it's a big old body of water essentially that you know, it's kind of like a river walk but Las Colinas' version of it. And back then, it wasn't very well developed, so pretty empty. Uh, so SWAT took the time to to search for him. And you know, from from my perspective, other people that worked at the hotel, I mean, everybody thought that this dude was going to get caught. You know, just 
I mean, how, oh, yeah. how could this guy have gotten that far, you know? And from our perspective, like, this this just happened. Like, we had no idea what would, what preceded us finding the girls in the back of the cab, so. Well, and he, I mean, unless he walked away on foot, well, he had I to mean, have somebody pick him up. Post-trial, I mean, I've already testified in this trial that right. you're, I mean, we, we know what the prosecution said happened, so he basically somehow got that cab, dropped it off, and somebody must have picked him up. He must have walked on foot. Um, but after the fact, you know that the police had canvassed almost every parking garage in that entire area. Yeah. And they were trying to triangulate the, um, the signal from Sarah Saeed's cell phone. But because there are so many parking garages and there are so many buildings in that small area, it was hard for them to do that, and they couldn't find her. Okay, so, I mean, the investigation starts happening. Did, did they make you stay the entire time? I know you said you were there pretty late, or did they just kind of question you and let you go? Did you have to stay because you're the manager on duty? Well, I mean, if we're being honest, I really don't think that the uh, police officer that arrived, whether he was the officer in charge or not, but I don't believe that they did a very good job, like, questioning people that may or may not have been witnesses. Oh. You know, nobody was you know, held back to provide witness statements or anything like that. I think there's like two people that may have provided statements, and that was the doorman and the cab driver. Um, but they didn't have me sit back, stay, and answer any questions that night. So I thought that was pretty weird. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously they got the phone call from Sarah when she yeah. was shot. Did Sarah they... was the first phone call, yeah. Right. And so... By the time they get there, they kind of already know a little bit of what's going on. Did they, like, they already had an idea that that was the girl? Police, I think, had known that there was, this was happening. Like, yeah, they seemed pretty, uh, pretty aware of all the things that had, had transpired and that maybe they were actually waiting for a phone call to come in, whether it was the girls or somebody, but it, it didn't seem to be a surprise to them. Okay, so if we could fast forward just a little bit, I think you had mentioned when you were telling me this story that uh, their mom, Patricia, who I think she went by Tissy, she came to see you, right? Yeah, and a couple after? weeks. Mm-hmm. A couple you, weeks after. What happened there? What, did, what was that conversation like? I was a manager on duty that morning. I think it was like a weekend day. And she had come to the desk and she was asking to speak to a manager. And I just happened to be working that day again. I invited her back into the office. Because I realized who she was. I told her I was the one that was there that night, and I was the one that placed the 911 call. And, you know, she was visibly upset, and so I brought her back to the office. I didn't want you know, make a scene. It was slow morning, but, you know, I wanted to make sure that uh, that it was a private conversation and that, you know, she, she didn't feel bad or, or whatever, mm-hmm. or embarrassed. So I uh, brought her back into the office, and, you know, she was explaining to me, you know, that um, that she was kind of having a tough time. That these are her only daughters, and I think her sister or like friend or somebody was with her. I think it was her sister, and um, she was you know wanting to know you know where her daughters were were sitting in the cab, like where the cab was, and that you know she wanted for her I guess closure. She wanted to know 
yeah. like where the girls were sitting when it happened and like and so I I, I was a bit shocked taken back that she was asking for this information yeah and you know I, I didn't know if I would be you know wanting to know this if these were my daughters you know and at the time I didn't have any children so um, but I told her you know I told her you know where they were and she got upset and she had mentioned you know that this is this is where the girls typically sat in the cab like that's you know and so later on when I saw pictures of the girls alive in the cab they're sitting in the same seats that I found them in wow. um, and then uh, her mom or their mom Patricia um, Patricia had asked if she could put like a memorial down by the cab stand where the girls were found. So I, uh, I told her that it was private property and it's typically not something that, you know, that the hotel would allow um, and that I couldn't permit that to happen. And um, so she was a bit upset. Uh, she said, well, what about the, uh, the street level, you know, like right outside near the street? And I said, well, it's city property. Uh, you can do that, but I can't guarantee that it's going to stay there. Yeah. You know, this city typically, at least Irving and Las Colinas, they're very, they're, they were, I don't know anymore, but they're very particular about, you know, what can be, you know, seen and not seen. Um, you know, with signage and hotels, stuff like that, everything had to be street level, couldn't be like on a building visible for everybody to see. So, okay. um, so yeah. So how was she dressed when she came in? Because there's a lot of controversy around how sometimes she claimed to be Christian and other times she claimed to be Muslim. Was she dressed in she like, was clean not, clothes? She was dressed... Any normal American would be dressed... So not like you would very, consider most very, Muslim. Very casual. Okay. And what about in the trial? Which, did you notice her there at all? I saw her, but... I mean, same was, thing. She was dressed she, casual. Or she was wearing dressed, a mask. You know, she, so oh, they, was it during COVID stuff? So they, that's why she had to wear a mask. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't okay. know if it was like in the heart of COVID, but yeah, I remember now that you had to wear that mask, thing. So. Okay, but like her, she wasn't wearing like like She's the, wearing the cloth over her head. No, she, I've never seen her wear anything like a hijab or anything. No, that's really interesting. There's also a lot of opinions that swirl about her, and. I'm just curious, when you, when you had the conversation with her, obviously it was an emotional situation, so I don't know you know, if you got a good pulse on her, but what was your initial take on her? Because some people think that she could have done more, and you know, I have my own opinions about that, but um, when you had the conversation, what was your initial opinion of her? I mean, she reminded me of any, any mom, really, at the time, and she seemed... Um, overtaken with emotions you know like um, when I watched the trial or saw her testify stuff like that it's very you know I'd say very uh, consistent with the the way that I had communicated or the way she communicated with me at the time several years ago um, I had no idea what her past was I had no idea you know all the information I know now is because of the trial and me right. being keyed in on testimony and stuff like that so I had no idea that she was like 14 or 15 when yeah she got with uh, Yasser Saeed and uh, didn't understand you know 
any of the things that preceded this incident at the time. So yeah. um, I've heard people talk about her, and I've heard people, you know, say mean things. But I guess at the time that all this happened and everything leading up to that, I mean, she was a child when she got with this guy and she, when she got married. And so if you can imagine what this man did to these two children and the fact that she was 14, 15 years old when she got together with him and it's almost as if like her parents just gave her away like a piece of trash. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't blame her for all or any of the things that happened because I would assume um, a young girl that has grown to be the wife of a, of a predator, really, um, was a victim herself and and brainwashed and all the things and I think she th she's probably thought she was doing the right thing at the right time and everybody that is looking on the outside in has no idea what that lady went through so um, did I get mad at her while I was talking to her or listening to some of the things or I mean yeah like at the time not knowing any of the stuff um, I think it's really easy to pass judgment on somebody like that um, and to not understand why she didn't do more to protect her children but at the end of the day I don't think that she thought that this dude would have gone through with what he did I mean it's just it's kind of a scary thing it's been years I think it was 15 years that it took for them to finally capture him you realize that he's been captured mm -hmm. and that you'll probably have to testify. Like, how did you feel at that moment when you found out he was captured? Well, happy that he was captured. Sure. Shocked that it was in Justin, maybe like 10 miles away from where, where I live. Yeah, um, that's wild. But I was happy, you know, and I mean, so happy that I wanted to make sure that the Irving Police Department knew where I was just in case they were looking. Because I had moved, you know, mm -hmm. to the time that this happened, I graduated from college in, you know, 2008, and my phone number had changed, and they probably had no way to get a hold of me, no no way to contact me. So I had reached out to the Irving Police Department and uh, set up a time to come meet with them, let them know who I was, and so we sat into one of those interrogation rooms, just like you probably see on TV. So we just had a, a regular conversation, and uh, it was just one of those deals where I told him who, who I was, what part of you know being a witness, and uh, I didn't really feel like I was like a, a key witness of, of any kind, other than the fact that I didn't want people to get things wrong, you know? I knew what I knew, and I knew that I had an opportunity to be a, a pretty good witness. Okay, so while you're in the courtroom, testifying he was there right did you have to make eye contact with him I, I looked at him he never looked at me were there a lot of people there in the courtroom uh, yeah I would say so yeah. I think it was mostly media or was it there's a lot of media yeah. but I think that there's you know like maybe family friends and people you know, other him. people yeah. you know so I, I don't know how many other people there were but I mean I, I mean there's a lot of a lot of attorneys uh a lot of people that were, you know, you have like investigators, things like that. Yeah. Sure. Uh, but it, I mean, it wasn't empty, that's for sure. 
How was Yasser's demeanor? Like, was there anything notable? Um, and I seem he seemed uh, very, very reserved. Um, wasn't very, you know, animated by any means. I think he. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Just very quiet, very subdued, and um, he would talk to his. I think they called her an interpreter, but. He spoke English yeah. for, from my perspective. and um, So he would talk to her every once in a while, talk to an attorney every once in a while, but pretty much a blank stare for, for the most part and never made eye contact with me. You're up on the witness stand, and they're asking questions. I remember you had to wear that like clear mask over your face so they could still see your mouth moving, I guess. Um, but I, I did watch this part of the trial, and I remember the defense um, really trying to trip you up a lot. And I was just wondering if you could kind of talk about what your experience was like while you were on the witness stand and from your perspective how that went. Sure, yeah. I, I mean, defense attorneys are supposed to do their thing. So I expected that I would have some sort of, you know, pressure or pushback or whatever from some of the things I was saying or or whatever, but, you know, there were there were a couple instances where, you know, I was saying what I was saying, and I think she, she tried to summarize what I said or tried to recap what I said in a very wrong way, and so I made it very clear when she did that, that that that's not the way it was, and I corrected her a few times, so I wasn't trying to be combative, but I think that's the way she took it, so... Uh, you know, for me, it was I wanted to make sure that that what I said was was in the right that was taken in the right context and not, you know, switched around. But it seemed to me like she had a a desire to put words in my mouth. Yeah, a lot of defense attorneys do that. I don't not surprised to hear that, but still frustrating, I'm sure, from your perspective. Um, now the trial was live streamed. Like I said, I did get a chance to watch some of the trial, but. Because you were a witness, were you allowed to watch any of it beforehand? I'm, I'm assuming you could watch it once you were done testifying, but could you watch it beforehand? No, I was not able to watch anything before. I was not able to attend the trial prior to testifying. Um, so for me, I testified on the second day of the trial. And I think probably like right before lunch and then right after lunch uh, was my time frame. And so... Um, so yeah, like it was, I forget the exact time, but we recessed right in between like my testimony. So there's two parts to it, you know, the, the first part, second part, but the uh, second part was right after lunch and that was, you know, that was fun. Not really, uh, <laughs> having to go testify and then wait and then finish your testimony. And so, and then once that was done, I was done, I was released and I uh, was able to, you know, if I wanted to watch, I could. If I wanted to give an interview to press, I could. Um, you know, there's no restrictions on me. But there, there was one thing that I wanted to do because I was frustrated with the defense attorney. Because at one point, we were test or I was testifying, and she um, was asking questions about the cab stand and how much light there was and you know, were there cameras and you know things of that nature and 
I was trying to kind of paint the picture that this is a very dark area and mm -hmm. that, you know, there were lights in that area, but the lights were essentially uh, shaded because the trees did not allow the light to get through there. So it was like very dark. And then uh, I didn't know if there were cameras back there. I think there was one, but it was like old, like archaic. like. And uh, when I was the... Um, the manager on duty, I just knew that, that that camera didn't really pick up a lot, especially at night. And so, you know, she, she kept pushing. She said, well, how do you know that the trees were were full? Because this is the winter time, right? This is January. And, you know, in January, leaves fall out of trees and things like that. And I was like, well, that's not what I remember. I remember, like, this tree or these series of trees that go along the length of the capstan like being really thick and you know blocking any light that could potentially get through there and hence the dark area and uh, she's like and, and you can testify to that that's really the way it was and I was like well I can't see her and tell you you know that for for sure I was like but that's what I remember and so once I was released I went and I just did a bunch of research and I purposely didn't even look up any of stuff pre-trial. Um, and then during, like, I didn't want to, like, prep myself, if you will, or remember things because of pictures or things like that. So I wanted to remember firsthand information. So once I was released, I went back and I looked up a whole bunch of footage. And I found some crime scene photos that were on a website somewhere. And I saw, like, where the two police cars were, where the cab stand was. And those trees had all their leaves. So I remembered mm. everything the way I, I remembered them. But the defense attorney was tasked with an impossible thing, um, mm -hmm. you know, from my perspective. And this guy was convicted of first-degree murder, and he'll spend the rest of his life in prison. But, like, he, he was guilty. And from my perspective, he was guilty the whole time. And there was just no way around it. And defense attorney had an impossible task. And... She did all she could, and I, I don't blame her for any of the questions or the line of questioning that she had. I think she tried to do the best she could, and, you know, I mean, she, I guess she did it the best she could at the time, but it wasn't, it was a frustrating venture, that's for sure, for me to uh, be second-guessed and questioned the way I was, so. Hmm. I imagine that would have been really frustrating, plus, like, being on the stand and not being able to access wait a minute, I think I'm right, but can I just see pictures because I feel like I'm right, you know, and then having to go back after and realize that you were right. Um, but you're right. I mean, she, I would never want to be a defense attorney, probably for that very reason. I wouldn't want to defend the bad guys, but um, kind of a difficult task at hand. So, you know, obviously, like you said, he was convicted, thank God, and he's spending life in prison without parole. Um, but with that verdict and with being able to testify and tell your side of the story on behalf of these girls who weren't able to tell it, did you finally feel like you got a little bit of closure after the trial ended? Yeah, I would say so. Especially yeah. with the verdict? Yeah, I mean, you know, I have, I have two daughters myself now, and, um, you know, these those are the things that kind of went through my mind, you know, like before this guy was caught and, you know, like, you know, my wife, I, it's not like I would ever talk about the stuff with my family or whatever because nobody needs to know. And I don't want to burden people with things that I've witnessed in life, especially traumatic things like this. 
but having my own kids, like, the thought would always come through, like, how the hell can somebody do this to their, to their daughters, and, um, you know, just, like, just pissed off for, for them, you know, because you have a dad that thought that killing his, his two daughters was the right thing to do, whether it was cultural or just, you know, random act that, you know, the guy just got so upset that he did what he did, but I thought, you know, with all the trial stuff, it's premeditated. He knew what he was doing. Um, and then with the, the mom, you know, she's victimized herself, but at the end of the day, parents are supposed to protect your children. So, you know, just one of those deals where I would never imagine, or could never imagine something like that happening to my kids. And, you know, so for me, like this guy being put away, being caught, um, his son and his brother being caught and mm -hmm. put in prison, you know, it's about as, I'd say about as good a justice as you can get, uh, minus the death penalty, so. Right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us, um, and, you know, thanks for doing the good work of going and testifying on their behalf, because I'm sure that if they could, they'd thank you, so. Absolutely. Appreciate My you joining pleasure. us. Absolutely. Thank you. So. I forgot to preface this, but I was recovering from laryngitis whenever we did that interview. So I apologize that I probably didn't sound like myself. I was pretty hoarse and um, could barely speak by the end of that interview. It was very labored. <laughs> you got to quit smoking. <laughs> I know, right? Got to lay off it. No, I, my husband and I went to California, sidebar, for a week with our kiddos. And when we got back, my allergies hit me so hard mm. while I was out there. I lost my voice for an entire week, which is really fun. That was, you know, five kids, no voice. It's always a good time. Oh, but geez. so I was sort of recovering from that when we did that interview and it was towards the end of the day. So, you know, I had, it was just worn out, but, um, we'll never forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please. Um, you had asked a question about, um, uh, Patricia, uh, when she was being interviewed by the defense or just being interviewed in general, cause I'm sure the prosecution prosecution also interviewed her. Um, you asked if she was testifying on his behalf and I don't know the answer to that um, but one thing that it did spark is that the stuff that I have heard about her is that she kind of lies about a lot of stuff really? again no judgment she was probably self-preservation mode so brainwashed she probably doesn't even really know what reality is um, you know from the trauma that she's been through most of her life being married to this man at such a young age um, but yeah, things like she was talking about how when she got, when they when she tricked the girls into going home that she had been talking to Islam, um, which I think I called Israel earlier, sorry about that. It, Islam is the son and she was talking to him about he wanted, uh, Yasser wanted her to come home and with the kids and you know, then all the kids were like, wait a minute, nobody should have your number. So how is he calling you? We changed our numbers. Nobody had our numbers. And she, you know, kind of, like, lied her way out of that. She lied a few times on the documentary. It's uh, a lot of her stuff doesn't, it doesn't line up. Um, so I'm not sure even how credible her testimony would be if she was right. on the stand. Mm -hmm. uh, but, of course, they had to interview her. So you can go back and watch the full interview, the full, the entire case, 
in court on court TV if you want to go back and really kind of do a deep dive into that and you can see Mr. Watson on that as well and his testimony and how they kind of went around that because I did watch that portion of it and it was just really interesting you could see he was getting agitated a little bit by the repetitive questions like why the hell do you care if there are leaves on this tree? You yeah, know, what does like, that have to do with anything? This yeah. is my memory. You're not going to convince me I remembered it differently. But that's really all they were trying to do. They had no defense. So they were no, grasping no at straws. Yeah. And if, okay. I'm, if I remember correctly, he pled guilty. So what are we defending again? Right, right. <laughs> but I think he wanted the trial. I don't know why. It just doesn't make any just sense to waste to me, more but... tax dollars, time, and energy on this BS. Yeah. Was there anything else that in his interview that you wanted to touch on? Um, oh, I don't know if we talked, I don't know if this was said already, but the um, fact that she would wear, she would, I don't know if we said that already, did we? The I Christian, don't think so. Yeah, I think I don't we're think talking so. about the behind the scenes, or? Um, you said it in the interview. In the interview, that, yeah. yeah, that he would, she would, um, Patricia would go back and forth. That's really what prompted me to ask what her testimony was like, because it seems to me like she really did kind of gravitate to that culture, because she was wearing, I mean, and there's no, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but um, she wore Sorry. the, not the burkas, the... Hajib? Yeah, Is whatever that thing. Mm, yeah, I'm I don't so know. So sorry that. if I butchered that. Um, so even, I was looking at pictures while we were listening to the, the witness, um, testimony that he she I was looking through the pictures of the trial and she was even wearing um I don't know what the I don't know how to call the clothing so I apologize yeah same um but it was definitely not like traditional American clothing like it, it followed the Egyptian culture a little bit so she really she really liked that culture which is probably maybe why she continued to stand by him because in that culture and again I'm not ragging I'm just stating facts uh, women are indispensable. They are not yeah. respected. They are objects. They, you know what I mean. So, I told Caitlin behind the scenes, uh, yes, yes, sir, yes, sir, whatever that, that, whatever that guy's name is, um, Yo Mima, Joe Mima. We're gonna, get right? it, we're gonna get it right at some point. Um, he did it in the wrong country. Because don't, don't pronounce things the right way. I know. If, if you're a douchebag, <laughs> I really don't care. So I'm, you're not gonna. I'm not gonna go. Yeah. Yeah. Through great lengths. But yeah, I mean, if he, had he done that in Egypt. He probably, that probably would have been yep. acceptable. I mean, that is just, it's the sad reality of, they do, they do sexually abuse the women. Um, I read so many books, not just on Egyptian women, but, um, you know, Saudi Arabia and things like that, where women have come to the United States and told their stories. But, I mean, you want to stone your daughter to death or drown her in the pool? Done. Cool. No questions asked. Like, nobody cares. I mean, it's such so. rage. Like, even as a culture, the, the fact that that practice is acceptable mm -hmm. and that people are okay with stoning their daughters, drowning, killing, shooting, like, maiming, whatever. I mean, there were some pictures while we were scrolling through. There was one woman who had no eyeball because of whatever mm -hmm. the honor killing either tried to do or maybe it was just their way of teaching her a lesson. Like, how could you be such a violent culture that this is an acceptable practice I don't personally agree with it. I mean, that I will say. I'm not, like I said, everybody does different things. But that's one thing that I've always... But women... Women are, are there for, for men. They're there for their pleasure. They, you know, they brought they brought us into the world. They can take us out, so to speak. So, 
Yeah, which is crazy because they don't actually bring us into the world. No, no, but that's, you know, like mom. <laughs> they have no don't. part in that. <laughs> no, not at all. They just do their thing. I mean, I could totally sidebar on some books that I've read, but yeah, I mean, they have multiple wives and, you know, the husband dictates who he's going to have for the evening and it doesn't matter if your stomach hurts or whatever, but, and if you, um, if you are raped as a female over there, it is your fault. Uh, you will, because you, like you seduce them. I know. I'm like, I can't even see the faces. Right. You must have done something to invite that. So, I mean, I guess, so this, I guess he has never come forward and said why he's done it. It's just been like, well, I've, I've, I did it. I, I, I shot them. The end. Like that yeah, is where I I'm don't like, think he, not that there's a justification, but I'm just curious as to why he said he needed to do that. He may have gone more into it in the trial, so I'm not a hundred percent sure, but um, I speculate that he did talk about it a little bit because they, they know the order to which the girls were shot. Right. They couldn't know that because right. Sarah didn't divulge that on the call. They know, you know, like a, a series of events, how it went down. So I, I think that he did talk about some of the details to it, but um, it's more just that it's just come out that it was believed to have been an honor killing, which I... Culturally, yeah, that's know. acceptable. He wouldn't even have to answer to this. You know, know what I mean? It's really crazy. We could go way down the rabbit hole on this, but, um, you know, for time's sake, definitely go and take a listen to some of the other podcasts and information on this. You know, just if you really feel like going into the dark, deep hole of Yasser Saeed and this terribly tragic murder, you know, by all means. But, you know, thanks again to Nathan Watson, who joined us to talk about his experience in the trial and I am gonna dive deep into this because I'm really curious as to kind of what he the the mindset I mean we know what the mindset was but I'm more so for Patricia yeah like there's a lot of stuff on her on the documentary really she's on that and she's definitely obviously on the court case so she was on trial not on trial but she was had to give testimony during the trial so on court tv if you go into that so you could definitely get more information on her but there's a lot of mixed information out there about how Jeez. i mean there she has to have it. some sort of guilt oh because she heavy. You brought sure these girls heavy. back into this yeah you had an out you and were it, out who knows i mean it could have been a you or them and self-preservation kicked in i don't know not that i justify it but again she was a kid and she went into all of this and I don't know, that she's just experienced the trauma of him her entire life. So how could she logically make choices? I don't feel like we can hold her very responsible for it as much as it would be easy. She'd be an easy target for it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, well, that wraps us for season two. We are going to start working towards season three and start planning that out. But of course, if you have suggestions, send them our way. You can reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, um, and through email moms who talk crime at gmail.com just shoot us any suggestions you have for season three as we're planning it um feedback is always great we love your ratings so please keep them coming and we look forward to seeing you in season three heck yeah all right y'all take care we'll talk to you soon bye